Okay, welcome to Walking with JK Boots with the Brandon of Anchor Point Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you, seriously, for making the trip. I Dude, appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Thank actually you. pretty stoked to actually uh, see the magic behind the walls. Yes, That's cool. it is magical. Um, and quick history. So the first podcast we ever did with you was actually over the phone. The yes. second one we ever did with you was also over the phone. It was. And then the third one, the final third big badass boot episode was That's in literally person. what it was titled. Literally what it was titled. And that was at our writing store. And so it was, I think, I don't know, were we like the third or fourth or fifth episode you ever did or something like that? I think you were, I'd have to look for, I think you're the fourth episode. Yeah, something that like that. Yeah. So that was really cool yeah. to be a part of that history there. And so oh yeah, that's our history with you. And, you know, I remember when we did the first one, um, people knew about us, but not really. And that was a big boost for us. The second one was a big boost. So thank you. We owe you a lot. Appreciate you know, a lot. Dude. <laughs> you don't owe me a dang thing, man. No, it's, it's just cool. It's cool. And it's fire culture. So it, it is pretty cool. But let's make it about you. So, I mean, I think our, our listeners know Anchor Points, especially the fire guys, but for those that don't, Dude, just walk us through your fire history. How'd you even get started? I actually don't even know if you were forest service first or not. I was actually a uh, Bureau of Land Management first. Okay. So yeah, I was so on the DOI side, Department of the Interior side of the house. When was that? What year was that? So what I kind of crew? I started in 2009 and then uh, I tried to get on as an AD, which is an administratively determined firefighter. Now it's like an emergency. You're not like a full-time firefighter. You're just like, it's basically like the farm league, the minor leagues. Like, hey, try this out. If there's a fire, we'll call you. Be in shape, yeah. be ready. Let's go. I tried to do that in my rookie season with uh, Silver State Hot Shots, and I got my ass kicked like a wad of cookie dough because I, I was like you. 20 yeah. years old. I had no idea, no frame of reference, sure. never worked that hard in my life, even in sports. Like I did wrestling, I was a snowboarder, I was a swimmer. I, yeah, I could dominate that stuff. I was great at it. But when it comes to my small frame, hiking, you know, upwards of 60 pounds worth of crap up a hill and then working for ever, which seems like forever in yeah. 16 hour days, uh, as a hot shot. I mean, I just did not do well with so that. So physically it kicked your butt. It was getting arrogance. Wow. It was arrogance and ignorance, dude. I, I was just like 20 years old and just had no clue. Interesting. So mess <laughs> didn't necessarily make it on the hot shot crew, but luckily I had some heart and drive and they recognized that. And thankfully the, uh, superintendent and the assistant superintendent bumped me over back down to the engines and where I kind of developed and got some legs under me, so to speak, both physically and mentally. Right. And, uh, is actually one of the hardest lessons that I've ever had to learn. It's like those, those lessons of being a human and like what you're capable of and experiencing, uh, what is perceived as failure, like not achieving your goal was one of the most magical things that has ever happened to me because it's propelled me into a fire career that was a lasting for 11 years. Wow. And now I'm still connected to fire, both Anchor Point and yeah, yeah. Uh, my day job, BurnBot. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like all interconnected. It's It was a really cool experience. I'm so very thankful for that. first failure you think projected you into your fire career? Ironically, yes. Interesting. Yeah. And probably not a lot of people would open up a podcast with saying something like that. But uh, No, I think that's synonymous with a lot of the great stories you hear about people's you know great successes and things like that. And that's, I've experienced that. I mean, you know, things... There's a lot of things that didn't work out when we first got going, but oh, yeah. I think it's just, it's like grit. You just don't give up. Ultimately, you know, if you just don't give up, you, you will get to where you want to go. Oh, absolutely. Ultimately, yeah. And, and there's a whole uh, thing. I, I think that even in society as a, as a whole, right, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of failure, right, as long as you're failing forward. And I think that's kind of been removed from our society to some degree, and it kind of sucks. Like, how the hell are you supposed to figure out what you're good at unless you fail at stuff? Yeah. How? How do you do that? Fail. 
Tri- trial and error, right? Trial and Let's error. Just kind of go. So, oh nine, you did that the DOI thing, and then yeah. what? What was your journey into the Forest Service? So, I started like all right, bringing it back to the original question. Instead of going down rabbit holes here, um, so I started in oh nine with the Department of uh, the Interior, the Bureau of okay. Land Management, right? And not a lot of people know what a wildland firefighter is, so I'm going to try and give you the quick and dirty of it. Wildland firefighter is a, a person that goes out into the woods and fights wildfires. But there's a lot more to it. There's different crews. There's hell attack. There's smoke jumpers. There's uh, engine crews. There's hot shots. There's all this like wide, wide world of firefighting. So when you see smoke in the air from these wildfires across the West, which you are very familiar with. At this point, we are very familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, It's kind of funny because you see Twitter and everything like blown up with uh, smoke from New New Jersey and New York and stuff. And they're like, oh my gosh. What is that? Yeah, yeah. First time, huh? Well, you know, yeah. (laughs) You know, to be fair... um, maybe seven years ago, we didn't really have as much of it. I feel like as we do now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I get it. Cause I feel like when that first started happening with us too, we were kind of like, this is weird, you know, but, but at this point I'd say for the last solid five years, six years, every summer for about two or three weeks, we're just, we're smoked out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And, uh, it's, it's, it's becoming more common. Uh, I'd be, I, well, it's, it's really hard. There's a lot of complexity behind that. And I don't have the data here. I don't, it's not like we have a, you know, a person yeah, yeah, to pull yeah. up stuff. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, I need that third party. For yeah. the, for the I can <laughs> cross out my laptop if you want. Sure, yeah, if you <laughs> it's, it's in your office. But yeah. anyways, no it, it's, it's uh, I think there's more awareness rising to it. And I think that's due to the fact that people are being a little bit more vocal and uh, yeah. kind of spreading that word and educating people about what wildfire is and what you're feeling the effects of it, right? You see smoke in the air, you see green and yellow and white hotshot buggies show up for two weeks or a month or however long a campaign fire lasts. And then smoke diminishes there's still a little bit of you know interior torching or burning and then no one's to be found so no one knows exactly what it's like on the line and uh i think that's why through the course of my my fire career of 11 years i kind of developed into this like podcasting thing to tell the story of wildland fire right but it's not me telling the story it's It's your guests telling the story yeah yeah, Yeah. telling that perspective but bringing it back uh 2009 is when i started Department of the Interior, Bureau of Land Management, Carson City District, BLM. Wonderful time. Did uh, that on engines and filled in on some various hand crews, which is like hotshot light. It's not like a hotshot crew, but it's still kind of the similar work. So you're digging fire line, removing fuel from the uh, line, from the fire. You're creating fire breaks by hand with hand tools. You're hiking up and down hills, all that stuff, right? Then come, what was that, 2015, uh, I actually decided to finally pull my head out and go and explore and try and move up. And I took an apprenticeship spot with the Forest Service on the Rogue Siskiyou National Forest in so Oregon. So that full first six-year period was just DOI, BLM stuff? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know that. Wow. Cut my teeth there in a little station called uh, Doyle, California. And, uh, no, Are you a seasonal or, or all year-round? Seasonal, the entire time. I didn't get my wow. first perm appointment until, tw- sorry, 2014 uh, when I took that job with the uh, apprenticeship and the Forest Service. Where was that at? So Rogue Siskiyou National Forest. Uh, I was based out of Powers initially. Did a little time in Gold Beach. Did it uh, a year on Redmond Hotshots. Filled in with uh, Rogue River a little bit, and uh, yeah, it was fun, man. It was a cool learning experience. In fact, I loved it so much that in 2017, after I completed my apprenticeship, went through the academy, advanced academy, all that stuff, I even went back to get some more punishment and become a cadre at, uh, was that Academy, Foundational Academy 2, I believe. So shout out to everybody who's out there. Who's That's really cool. 
Yeah. That's really cool. So how many years total? So 11 years total. So, um, it feels like I'm aging in dog years. It's definitely put some city miles on my body, but sure. yeah. Uh, yeah. 11 years total, man. Can you talk about the, you know, um, I, I know from just doing firefighter stuff and just business and stuff, you know, the customers and things, but, mm. and even that I don't even know everything, but can you talk about the progression from like, let's say some guy starts out what what seems is like is entry level for a lot of firefighters is to work on an engine, even though that's not, mm-hmm. not that it's not serious. It just seems like everyone kind of starts either like volunteering and they get on, they say like, Oh, I worked on an engine. And then like they work up and it's like, can you talk about the progression of like, what does a career usually look like if someone's going to be a wildland firefighter for like, 20 years you know what is that even like what is it and then there's the seasonal thing permanent thing what does the progression of a career even look like for wildland fire so um well let's bring it back i think things are changing more importantly and i think that's from the efforts of grassroots wildland firefighters yeah. it's an organization they uh they're a nonprofit that kind of advocates for the boots on the ground we love those guys yes it's awesome they're doing some wonderful stuff um but uh for me in my experience uh I want to say that you start off as a seasonal or that farm league, the AD, administratively determined firefighter, right? And that's an on-call position. Or you move up to a seasonal position if you get lucky and uh, get picked up by your first year or you get converted from that AD into, you know, a full-time position. But it's still seasonal. So you're getting your uh, your six months of firefighting, right? It's yeah. 3910 or th- 1039, apologies. It's called a 1039 position, and that is one hour short of half-time like half a year of work. But in reality, the way that the laws are written for like labor laws is that since it's one hour shy of that 1040 to or 2080 is going to be full-time year round work, right? At 40 hours a week. Well, now you're one hour shy of that six month thing, right? Which qualifies you for insurance benefits, retirement, all that stuff, right? It's a seasonal workforce. It's great for a college. It's great for a college job. If you want to make some decent money, at quick that cash time. kind of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's feast or famine though. Sure. I won't lie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's either it's a, a really busy fire season or it's really, really slow and you're just sitting there eating ramen. Is it kind of like the feast part is like over time and just you're running and gunning 21 yes. days, whatever, how long a roll is or something that's kind of like, so it's, it's almost ironic. Like if the fire, if the, if the force is on fire, it's good for the firefighter because they're busy and they're working and they're making money. Yeah. I mean, it's, let's reframe that though. It's, it's good for the firefighters bottom line. And I, I hate saying that, but in the reality of it is, is we're not Cal fire. We're feds, right? We don't make Cal fire wages. Yeah. We are an entry level firefighter previously to grassroots. They're probably making 13, $14 an hour to go risk their lives for six months out of the year. Crazy. Yeah. And that 1039 halftime seasonal position that's not inclusive of your overtime. It's not like you run out of 1039 appointment hours. That's just your base wages over. So what you end up doing is you actually work more than a year. Sometimes, sometimes a year and a half, you have thousand hours of overtime in a season, 1300 hours of overtime in a fire season. That's, that's a a year of work condensed into five, six, sometimes four, sometimes seven months. So it can be really, really good if you hit a lot of overtime. It can be really good, but we're not making qualifier wages. We right. are, it, it kind of sucks too, because we're having to chase these, these overtime assignments, right? These fire assignments, right? And hope you get up on the board and go out to an assignment because if you don't, well, you're starving through the winter because you're unemployed during the winter period. That's, yeah. it's not like anybody, I mean, you as a business owner, what if somebody came up to you, unless they're extremely talented, right? 
just somebody you didn't know, kind of gruff, had his beard, kind of probably smells like B.O. because they've just been out in the forest and yeah. said, hey, will you hire me for the next four months? Because I got to take two months off on either side to, one, decompress from the fire season, and two, get back into shape. Get back into yeah. shape and all that stuff. No, of course not. And, and and no business, no no company will because you don't you don't just hire people for a short period of time that have, you know, the investment alone into just training somebody will take four months yeah. before they can actually be in a position to provide value to them. So no, the answer is no. And it's very, very rare unless you have a skill that's already developed like construction or if you're just like a wicked yeah, boot yeah, maker already yeah, and yeah, you just yeah. want that seasonal job, then it's yeah. different, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Joe Schmo, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to even find a job at, you know, something relatively unskilled, like working at McDonald's, you know, well, they just will take you for four months. Yeah. yeah. No, no one really even does that. I don't think. I don't even think McDonald's would do it. Yeah, probably not. I mean, uh, you can just lie, but that's not, not a good strategy either. You know? Some people so. have to do that, but it's like, a, it's like a, it's a necessity, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, back to the whole thing is, um, the average entry level wage for a federal wildland firefighter, but previous to grassroots efforts, probably 13, 14 bucks an hour. So a good fire season is a busy one for us, our perspective. However, for the taxpayer, that's my money going there. Right. And yeah. I'm a taxpayer just like you, just like yeah. our, our producer. And to say a good fire season is a, a busy one. The public's going to look at you a little bit different, and they're going to get probably a little bit pissed. And be like, "What do you mean you're going to let this fire burn?" They're going to make those assumptions, and it's yeah. like, "No, you're out there getting your ass kicked and risking your life, risking your life doing it." Right? Yeah. We're not here to for the all American f around hour. We're risking our lives to put this fire out. We're doing our best we can, and the reality is that you can only do so much. You're fighting Mother Nature. That's a very very powerful force. I agree. You can only do so much, and I'm not going to risk my life unless it's very circumstantial like a few circumstances i would however if it's a couple of acres that i have to sacrifice for the safety of my guys and girls out there i'm not gonna go for it i'm sorry yeah no i, I don't think anybody would disagree with you i mean that's like that's very so burke it's was hard. here burke from the foundation was here oh, really? a couple of weeks ago and we, we filmed together and you know, I've known the foundation for a long time so, and because you just touched on this thing with risking your life. You know, well, Burke sees the other side of it where someone not only risked their life, but they paid the ultimate price, yep. which is their life. I got a lot of friends on the wall. There you go. Yeah, you know. I got a lot. So, you know, w way different now. So as you, you mentioned, like as a taxpayer, so like as a taxpayer, you know, you, you might have, you have an opinion and you should because you're a taxpayer, you pay them, you, know, you pay your taxes, whatever. Yeah. But like on the other side of that too, it's you know seeing it, just listening to Burke share his perspective on how many people are on that wall, how often it happens, and what happens to a team or a crew when that happens, and it's like it, it makes you kind of reevaluate. Okay, well, like I, I hate to say it because I mean if it was my house or something, yeah, I'd be upset. But like, is that house worth it? Is that acreage worth it? You know, uh, no. It's you a moral know, the, dilemma. The, the, yeah. The short answer is no. There's a longer answer where you can come at it from different angles, but it, it's like really hard to, to justify like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to risk putting three more guys on the wall or whatever, you know, whatever the situation is, three guys or gals for this, you know, material thing. And there are things that can't be replaced that might, you know, burn down in a fire, but ultimate, what's the ultimate price? What's the price that all men pay? It's, it's death. It's their, it's their life. You know, it's like, and we all pay that debt eventually. Exactly. And you, you try to pay it as late as possible. Right. Yep. So, and you try to pay it in the most fulfilling way as possible. And so 
what what is the average age of a wildland firefighter? Mid twenties, early thirties, late thirties. Yeah, 30s? I'd say about probably twenty one to well, depending on how far along you are. I mean, operationally, I've seen you know sixty year old people out there on the line cutting line. Wow, that's yeah. amazing! I never some even of heard the hardest that. individuals that I've ever seen in my life. Okay, then I take it back. That, then what, whatever you know, still young, relatively. Yeah, young, it's, it's right? a young yeah. man and woman's yeah. sport, hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Younger people, yes. And then to now think that okay, well. Yeah, no one should be no one should be paying that price at thirty six years old or twenty seven years old or whatever. You know what I mean? So, Absolutely not. Anyways, that's just the perspective, and I share that perspective because I'm not a firefighter, but I've just been talking to you. I've talked to Burke, you know, our customer base, and then I'm just a guy, you know, taxpayer guy. It's like before I heard all of this stuff, you would see it one way, and you kind of say, "Hey, like." what the hell, go, go save that forest or whatever. You know what I mean? Well, it's but easy it's, to make assumptions with something that you have no frame of reference of, right? right? right, right it's easy. Right. It's this armchair is just, quarterback center. Exactly. Right? This is just the perspective of, I think, of the comments. So I think things like this is very eye-opening for people, and they realize it. Yeah, I mean, like, it was the way that Burke, uh, he just did such a shout-out to the foundation, and, and the way that he shared, and listen to that podcast if you can, the way that he shared just the from the eyes of, like, you know, if someone dies, you see on the news, and then it's like you forget about the next day. But he doesn't because yeah. he has to deal with, and he not, not he has to, he does it voluntarily, but he goes and he helps and assists, like, the families all the way. And even off off air, the stories he would share with me, it's, like, it's, like, really sad and serious and horrible. And It is. Yeah, it's, like, terrible. <laughs> I couldn't... Uh- Shout out to Burke and Burke. I've known forever. In fact, I met him in uh, the Bastrop complex in 2011 in Texas. Right. And he was out there doing uh, like a relief fund kind of thing. And, you know, he had the foundation booth out there and he was in ICP and they're doing their thing. And uh, that's when I first met him. I'm like, yeah, I know Vicky. Vicky's the, you know, the, the, the face OG. for a while. Yeah. Yeah. She's the OG. She's the founder. And then I see how Burke's like reacting to all this stuff going around. And I'm like, He's going to be the next executive director. Watch. That's so cool. Which is cool because he has a passion for it and he's a wonderful human being. And so is Vicky. Vicky is, <laughs> there's a saying out there, uh, it, it's, you get two types of Vicky, right? You either get Roseanne Barr or Mother Teresa. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> funny, actually. No real in between. That's really funny. Wonderful human beings. But looking back at like what they uh, encounter and all the quiet parts that they can't say out loud, I couldn't imagine the emotional burden that they would carry. Pretty both massive. Of them. Yeah, yeah, massive. Because yeah. it's not just the firefighters. It's not it, that that fell right. It's their families. It's their friends. It's their loved ones. It's the. It gives, dude. It gives me chills, man. Like, like hearing taps when you know you're at a funeral for a firefighter. That'll break a man. And if it doesn't, it's, it's like, it's like the antithesis of hearing your child cry for the first time when they come out of yeah. the of the womb. Yeah. It's the antithesis of that. And it's so powerful and moving. And you hear taps playing at a funeral or if they're doing like an honorary thing and you see honor guard doing drumline and all that stuff, it moves you. However, it comes at a cost and it's price is paid in blood, unfortunately. Yeah. Bringing it back to like the whole grassroots thing too. And like the, the utterly, I can swear on this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't want to go too crazy, but a lot of firefighters are foul mouth, so I'll try and keep it a little bit PG. Be, be, give us Brandon. All right. Okay. I'm going to go full bore. Yeah. So you go back to the like the pay, the shitty working conditions, the long hours. I mean, it, it's a young man and woman's sport, but 
there's nothing like it. It's like almost like, like battle camaraderie, right? I mean, a lot of veterans will say and compare it to the military, which is blows me away because we're not, you know, dodging rounds. We're not, you know, taking IEDs, roadside IEDs or anything like that. It's not like that. But the structure is very paramilitary. The camaraderie. The camaraderie comes with that, right? It's a paramilitary organization at the end of the day. It is not to be confused with warfare, though. I will say that. It's not a battle. It's not war. But the shitty working conditions, the inherent danger, the constantly being away from your family and friends, you're at the end of the day, you're a part-time family man, husband, you miss birthdays, you miss funerals, you sacrifice all this crap, and you're just chasing what? A fire, right? Fire's going to do its thing. In fact, fire's a very rejuvenative thing, right? But to make up for that time in the off season to make ends meet and actually survive, you need to make those sacrifices. And there's no one who's going to tell you that and really truly make you grab it. Like understand the gravity of what I'm trying to say here. The boots on the ground that knows exactly what I'm saying. But until you walk a mile in someone's shoes, those boots that you have to some make, right. <laughs> you'll never understand. Okay. Can I ask you a hard question? Then? Go ahead. So then why do they do it? It's the best job in the world passion there's a joke out there i mean back to the pay thing it's like yeah we get paid in sunsets you know there's something to be said about that you're digging holes and making dick and fart jokes with 20 of your best friends in the middle of nowhere oftentimes untouched by humanity like no one's probably seen this you'll come across an arc site or a mine and you'll see a can from like the 1800s or a bottle that's like leaded glass it's amazing it's incredible you get to see the most awe-inspiring vistas and views and you can see like you're, you're so far remote and removed from humanity out there. And the only thing you have around you is your crew and you just be like laying down, going to bed, crash out for the night. And you can just see the entire Milky Way painted across the sky. Wow. It is the most oddly cathartic, beautiful, destructive and gorgeous thing you'll ever do in your life. And it's all backed up by the rest of the people behind you doing the same exact shit, stay in, day out for six to eight months out of the year, then they go home, get to be that part-time family man, that part-time husband and full-time firefighter still. Yeah. But you keep coming back. Is it's, there it's, a, it, it's addictive. I don't know. It's like we're, it's like the most abusive, toxic relationship ever. It's like we're chasing a crack pipe or something. Honeymoon effect, yeah. Yeah. Is, is there a level of like um, passion for nature, passion for the environment, 100%. passion for wildlife? mixed in with these people you know, that are doing this. Okay. Cause oh, yeah. I, I thought that that would be a massive motivator is just passion for the, passion for nature. Oh yeah. The outdoors. Yeah. Just conservation in general. I mean, these are, you know, people that are outdoorsmen and women, they're hunters, they're fishermen, they're, they're all the, the litany of outdoor stuff. Right. Even if they're not, they're still contributing to like the conservation efforts. I mean, you're going to go pick a fist fight with mother nature. You better yeah, be punched you above be your punching. weight class. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, Reno, Nevada, actually. I'm okay. from San Diego originally, but I don't like saying that out loud. You know, San Diego is cool, but the whole kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it. Not about um, San Diego. so like for, for someone growing up, maybe I, I don't actually, I don't I guess I don't know too much about Reno and if there's a lot of fire around there, but like California for sure, pretty much anybody growing up in California knows a wildfire is, I think yeah. 
I'd hope so. I would hope so at this point, right? So do you think that there's a difference between like the kid who grows up around, like let's take Redding, California, because that's a great example. Do you Mm -hmm. think there's a difference for the kid who grew up in Redding who has been seeing green buggies since he was six and, you know, smoky summer since he was a baby and, you know, knows all about that versus the guy who like maybe let's say is like from the Midwest where there's just not as much wildfire per like, you know, Wyoming or whatever. Yeah. You know, or Iowa, the plains. And, you know, I hear a lot of people who like, they live somewhere else then they come here for seasonally and fight fire. Do you think there's a difference in, it's almost like, you know, in Israel, there's military services mandatory and like they're, you know, they go and fight because they feel like attacked from all these other countries or whatever. Do you think that there's a difference between for that kid that grows up in Redding around fires whole life has seen neighborhoods burned down versus the kid who, or the guy who is, you know, coming from somewhere else. Like there's a bit of a, more of a, like I'm fighting for my defending my home, so to speak, for the guy who grew up around wildfire. Have you ever seen that before? I've experienced it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, 100. There is that uh, caveat to it, and it attracts a certain type of individual. This job is not made for everybody. I mean, a lot of the b- big burly hotshot types they don't look like me, but I still made it right. eventually. Right. I had to work up to it, but sure. there, there's. I have, a, I have a theory that fuck ups and rancher kids that make the best firefighters. That's good. That's funny. <laughs> I'm, I will 100% stick by that till the day I die. But the reality is that these people are warrior poets. And I think that being exposed to it, it's kind of enchanting at first, but then the reality set in because we're much more than some of the fires that we put out, right? We're, I know lawyers, people that are bar certified lawyers that are jumping out of intelligent people, very educated, intelligent people. This is not unscaled labor. So for those, uh, politicians out there saying that this is unskilled labor, I call bullshit. This takes a lifetime. This is a, a pursuit of passion. It's 100% at the end of the day. I mean, granted, it's not really a traditional, like, Oh, I'm going to be go, go be a doctor. I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to be a, a lawyer or whatever. Well, that's not fair because it's everyone knows what a, when you think of firefighter, you think of a big red truck or when you think exactly. about a doctor, you think of the white lab coat When you think of a lawyer, you think of the suit and tie in a court case, but An nobody identity, knows right? what wildland fire even is. So it's unfair to say that because it's <clears> such a niche. So that's total garbage. It's just, you know, we can throw that out the window. Yeah. But as I bring it back to the thing, I was like, if you're exposed to it at a very uh, consistently through a young age, I think that, you're probably going to have more of a propensity to like actually go towards that route because it's an awesome job. It's especially like I was saying, those uh, college jobs, like you're just trying to figure life out those young 20 something year olds and like, I got figured out yet. So I'm going to go do this. And then it sucks in. You catch that fire bug. Yeah. I think that, uh, definitely exposure helps. But then again, I've seen the most amazing, incredible fire, fire men and women come in from like the Midwest, like you're saying New York, Vermont. But then again, you got to realize that, wildfire name a continent that wildfire doesn't touch antarctica bingo that's it actually can you name any other no no exactly no so wildfires inexorably connected with humans right in fact if it wasn't for fire and us harnessing fire we'd not be evolved to the species that we are today or the culture or the sum of all of our history without fire we wouldn't have even probably arguably even invented antibiotics uh, 100%. So if, if you take that, you know more of this, I'm sure, than, than, I, than I do. But, um, you know, just from like learning in school and just basic, you can just read this up on the internet. But you said it when we were in the truck. Um, fire is nature's like cleanser. Yeah. yeah. It's nature's garbage disposal. Nature's garbage disposal. That's what you used. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. And I, 
full disclaimer here, I actually started a new job with a uh, wonderful company called BurnBot. And uh, imagine, I guess, the TLDR version. It's a tech startup, but imagine like a forestry Roomba. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not really a Roomba. It's all human controlled by remote. But uh, we do a system of forestry masticators that grinds up stuff like the vegetation and stuff, but it's on the ground. So what we're trying to do is reduce the effects of catastrophic wildfire and like damaging wildfires, right? If you were to say, oh, we need to stop wildfires, I'm going to look at you and be like, you want to what? You want to turn off nature's garbage disposal? So then natural starts of lightning are going to be that much more dangerous and destructive to our landscape. Or some spark from a chain or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or someone shooting out like yeah, rocks, yeah. not paying attention, and they yeah. spark a wildfire and it yeah. goes rips, and then it's generational damage onto our lands rather yeah. than, you know, nature's garbage disposal where yeah. the tree canopies are still intact. You have game returning. You have like morels popping out of the burn scar. You have new growth. It's a very regenerative process. So what Burnbot does is they have this. Uh, thing called the RX-1 that they're developing and they're trying to put more fire on the landscape so we don't have another campfire. We don't have another August complex. We don't have these giga fires that are ultra destructive because of, I'm not even going to like bring up climate change. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. We have removed fire from our environment for the last hundred and something years, ever since 1910 with the big burn and the implementation of the 10 a.m. policy. Back then, we had this knee-jerk reaction and thought we could play God and say every fire from here on out will be put out by 10 a.m. the next day. That is the goal. That is the ultimate mission. What do we do? We, you turned off nature's garbage disposal. Precisely. So BurnBot's trying to put that garbage disposal back on because we fucked everything up. Wow. That's yeah. a really interesting perspective. Yeah. Can you, can you touch on a little bit more specifically just this thing? I just think for our listeners, this is cool. The subject of just forestry like maintenance mm -hmm. cleanup um one time i had a firefighter customer who told me that um i think it might have even been like the lightning complex or something like that it was one of those years he said to me he's like oh i knew that that was going to happen yeah he's not like, because science. yeah because he's like two years before that we were walking around in that area and there was like two or three feet of just you know pine needles debris fallen branches it was dry and he's like that, w that wasn't a surprise to us. Like, we knew that that was coming. Mm -hmm. So can you just share on, like, what is even the right kind of, in your opinion, forestry cleanup maintenance, and why is, do you think it's not happening, and what should it look like? And I'm going to refer to history on this one, right? So if you look at, it's actually, I, I'm not going to say the name of it. I can't say too much about this documentary that's coming out because I don't want to out the guy. But it's going to be dropping here pretty soon, and it's great. He uh, makes a comparison of... Uh, the indigenous cultures and their use of fire, right? Across the entire globe. Name an indigenous culture that hasn't used fire to attract game and rejuvenate the landscape. I feel like that's just, an, everyone did that. No one globally. That. Yeah. Globally, yeah. right? So if you look at like uh, some of the trees and we're seeing carbon dating from these tree ring samples that go back to since Jesus was, before Jesus was born. Sure. Right? Sounds, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, I mean for written history we have we have thing we have things growing on our landscape in fire adapted ecosystems that predate written history amazing why is that i don't you tell me because it was managed by the indigenous peoples across the globe that is something that we need to look for we need to look to our past i mean gigafires megafires these million acre fires they're nothing new they've happened before they're going to continue to happen and it sucks right however if we were to manage 
car landscapes properly and use the right tool for the right job, whether that's prescribed fire or stacking sticks and doing prescribed burns, like manual labor, stacking up pile burns and stuff in the right ecosystem. Like not every fire, not every ecosystem is fire adapted. I will say that. So I try not to be like super reductionist here, but more fire. We need more fire on the landscape, productive, good fire. And I cannot stress that enough. It's like, what would you rather bitch about right now? Some prescribed fire smoke where it's minimal, where it's dissipating, it's over in a week. Or would you rather deal with with what New York is dealing with? It's like, welcome to the club. This is what the West has been dealing with for the past forever. forever. But this is not something that is going to go away. You're always going to have wildfire. You're always going to have smoke. You're always going to have the buildup of debris on the land. But if we were to use a tool that is arguably as safe and the risk versus reward ratio with fire, using fire on the landscape to just turn on and replicate nature's garbage disposal, we need to be doing more of that. We need to be empowering people and educating people to put more fire on the land because I would rather not deal with months of smoke. I'd rather deal with the couple weeks. That's so interesting. So it's so counterproductive in thought, right? So you need, you need more smaller fires to have less of these giga massive big fires. Yes. And it's not even like it's, it's very nuanced, right? It's, these, these giga massive mega wildfires, whatever you want to call it, the pyrocene era that we live in, right? Excellent book, by the way. Uh, check it out. They're going to continue to happen. But of those million acres, what was productive? What was beneficial for the land? However, if you look to, I have a favorite fly fishing spot. It's uh, Hat Creek, right? It's in California. Great place, right? Out the Lassen. It's right off the Lassen Mountain uh, National Park there. And beautiful country, right? And they stock it above a bunch of dumb fish because I'm a horrible fisherman. So, <laughs> anyways, going out there, you passed ha- past a, a town called Susanville. If you're driving from Reno to Hat Creek, there's this uh, fire that happened out there, and it's called the Hog Fire. Two G's. I want to say that happened about four years ago. And to this day, there's not a damn thing growing on that landscape except for invasive species and weeds on the side of the road. I drove through there the other day, in fact, and it's still, it's a deadscape. It has been so much fuel intense or fuel loading and fuel buildup and uh, the lack of fire on the landscape that it built to this like catastrophe to where it sterilized land. The microbes are gone. The mycelium layer is gone. It is a deadscape, and now you just have a bunch of standing dead trees that are burnt to a crisp, just matchsticks. Wow. For as far as the eye can see on both sides of the road in some places of 395, or what is that, the 44, whatever highway that is. That's the kind of stuff that's irreparable. It's not irreparable because over time it will grow back. It will. However, my kids are not going to see the same forest that I grew up in. I used to go there with my dad. And go fishing at Hat Creek. We used to go mess around. We used to go drive through there all the time to my uncle's place up in uh, Coffee Creek. My kids aren't going to be able to see that. It was like a little piece of my my passion, my outdoors, my conservation efforts that I've spent eleven years of my life doing is gone. And I'm I'm really concerned that in fifty years it's just going to be the same RuneScape. Can you share your thoughts on why you think conservation, or is the conservation the right word? I don't even know. I just don't know what else to put to it besides conservation. So why isn't it happening on a larger scale? Because the problem is so massive, right? You have with the, the Bureau of Land Management, so sorry, the Department of the Interior, which manages the Bureau of Land Management, the 
fish and wildlife, uh, natural national parks, and the Bureau of Land Man or Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the Bureau of Land Management. Yeah, and you have the Forest Service, right? Those are public lands. Those are federally owned public lands. That's you and I. Mm-hmm. That's our land, right? Right. right. Which There's, you still have to pay to go see a national park, but whatever. Comes with the territory. You comes take with the territory. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't get me started on that. Yeah. I'm gonna still yeah. box, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> I got to say, just if you're going to go to a national park and pay to be there, don't shit on the land. I mean, for, for F sakes, man, um, just take care of it. Okay. Booze, ass movement. The ass movement. Shout yeah. out to him. Yes. Please go look him up and do what he says. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I was talking about more of a figurative sense. Like, don't like leave a mess. Don't leave your fucking uh, tent behind. I agree. No, no. I like, clean up. But yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Don't treat it like shit. And you know, maybe you could say the other side, there's a reason that we charge to get in there because of, because of assholes, because of people who do that stuff. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing, though, is like we, uh, anyways, I digress. Um, we have between the two agencies, I want to say 640 million acres across the United States, including Alaska, I believe. 647. You said it earlier. Is it 647 yeah. I said earlier? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm sure someone Give will take me. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kentucky windage, windage there. Think about that in scale, right? Yeah. How many states is that? We're measuring that land in states. I don't even know how to wrap my, I don't even know what that looks like. I can't wrap my head around it. It's an infathomable number, right? You can't comprehend that number. And like being out in the middle of 640 million acres. You look over a valley of like a 10,000 acre parcel or something like that. And it's just like, it just goes on and on and on. This is, you know, tens of thousands of times larger. That's just ridiculous. Take the highest peak around here to where you can climb up it and you have the clear line of sight. 360 degree view yeah. to where you can see the curvature of the earth. You won't see, you will not see that a, a, a drop in the bucket of that. Yeah. That's a lot of land. Now there's on a good year of hiring, there's about 50,000 wildland firefighters or people that can do the job from a federal side. They're firefighters. They're not land managers. They're not the ones out there doing the, the prescriptions for burning. They're not the ones doing the prescriptions for fuels reductions. They're not the stuff, the people that are doing all the other stuff. They're being asked to as a subsidiary duty, as like a, an add-on duty, right? Other duties as assigned. That problem right there, you cannot hire your way out of. So if you don't use something like fire to where it's effective and relatively safe, as long as it's put on the ground in the right kind of prescription, hence prescribed fire, how do you go through and treat all these acres of land unless you have nature's help? And now on top of that, you got to throw on top of those 640 million acres of land, you got to throw state land, municipal lands, uh, any, anything that is covered private. by wildfire private. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? How do you hire your way out of that problem? You can't. Wow. Shout out to Burnbot. We're trying to fill out that problem. Yes. <laughs> but so are you, are you in, in a way, are you suggesting that if we, if, the United States had never started doing that thing that they did in 1910 and they had just let wildfires be wildfires. Would we not be in, would we not be in the situation we're in today? Like in other words, did, did trying to just go put mm. out fires like crazy, mm. stop the natural process and then just, it made it compounding worse and worse over time. Yes. We've accelerated that right now. This, this fire loading, these explosive fires are going to occur naturally over time. Sometimes fires and especially in very particularly wet or fire resilient ecosystems, they just don't happen. They don't happen that often. So you're going to get that natural fuel loading. One of the largest and most deadly wildfires ever was in 
like Michigan or something like that. It started the same day as like the the Great Fire of Chicago. Was it, I, I don't know what year that was. I'd have to look it's it up. Early 1900s, yeah. Early 1900s. And it killed thousands of people. They don't wow. even have a body count. And it's horrible. In fact, the big burn of 1910, it was a couple million acres. It stretched from this neck of the woods throughout Montana and up into Canada. You said that that Great Fire was in Michigan? Uh, the current one right now. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, another one too. Okay. Yeah, previous yeah, history. Yeah. So these fires, these, these extreme giga fires and mega fires, they weren't as frequent back then, but they did happen. But if you look fast forward today where we've moved fire from the landscape, what are we doing to ourselves? I mean, are we just accelerating that process of waiting for the next mega fire, giga fire, whatever the hell you want to call it? Yes, we are. I, I am a firm believer that we are. We're compounding a problem. And it's not necessarily that, you know, fire season is getting longer. It's, it's hotter. It's drier. But I think the most uh, dooming thing is that fire has changed. It has changed fundamentally the way we attack it, the way we, we engage it, and the danger and the risk associated with it. So these, these hyper-destructive fires that you're seeing right now that is compounded from this bullshit 10 a.m. policy where we're trying to play God, now you're walking into a, a, a fire environment where you have explosive growth and the intensity has the capability to sterilize land. Like I said, this is nothing new, but it's happening more frequently. And that's kind of scary. Like the fires that aren't, if they're in the right area with this massive fuel loading, if they aren't suppressed right away and they get off, uh, get away from the, uh, the, the management team or whoever's attacking that fire and it's a red flag day with some the right weather conditions, you're going to have things like the car fire. You're going to have the campfire. You're going to have these insanely fast moving through very, very dense uh, vegetation more frequently. It's more dangerous. It sucks, dude. Wow. Yeah. This That's what I mean like by catastrophic wildfire. It's like generational damage to landscape or communities. I feel that it should be taken much more seriously. You're planning. How do you sell what ifs? How do you sell them? Yeah. I mean, insurance, people buy insurance, fear, right? Fear. Just fear, you know. And that's why I want to take the climate change thing out of it because this is something that we can. Wildfire is something that we can manage. Yeah. I'm not saying we should play God, but I think we should put more fire on the landscape. We have something that's in our control, yet we don't like to smell smoke. I don't know what it is. We need to reestablish our loving relationship with fire, I think, wildfire. Um, this might be an interesting question for you. There's a, you know, I, I don't really even know what title to put on it, but there's a, I would say a movement or a, a community of individuals who are all about like, don't cut the trees down, don't touch the forest, leave it alone, you know, kind of like it, that's maybe extreme, but th that community exists. Yeah. You know, um, what what is your view on that approach? Because from my my interpretation would be that from what you're saying, it sounds like that's the worst thing you could do, and you should. I'm not saying clear cut, but you <laughs> should take care of and manage and cut down dead trees and bad trees and all this stuff. So can you speak into maybe that part? Cause there's kind of like this like nature movement going on too. There is. And you know, I mean, clear cutting sucks. It's ugly, but a lot of the clear cutting that you see in Oregon and Washington, it's all on private land and they have laws and regulations and a and lot they replant of, actually, they have to, yeah. they're legally required yeah. to, it yeah. sucks, but the turnover, it's actually a really good sustainable resource in some, some areas. 
I mean, I think the turnover on a harvestable timber crop of like Doug fur is like 30, 20 years. Yeah, 20 or 30 years. So I made a pair that. of boots for a logger who told me that he clear cut a forest when he was just getting started. Mm-hmm. And then around retirement age, he clear cut that same forest again. Yeah. Yeah. That's true story. True story, right? Yeah. But yeah. loggers, land, they, they manage land, right? Yeah. Because there's money involved with it, of course. That's their bottom line. Yep. I, I get it. I get it. But for the folks that think that wildfire is bad and is destroying Bambi's habitat. Well, it is, but if you destroy Bambi's Bambi's habitat to where you nuke everything to where they can never come back. Yeah. What's worse, right? Pick your poison, right? Yeah. 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 Do you want to go the nuclear option or do you want to go the tactical option and be like more specific on what we want to pick our battles over? Not even that. I mean, I think that this thing about people who like, Oh, completely don't touch it at all human interaction is is, you know humans are the problem with everything all the time and don't you know no human interaction it sounds like from what you're saying actually in this particular sense we need a little bit more human interaction to manage so there's not these massive gigafires like taking care of the forest because it's not you said indigenous cultures did do that yeah trees older i mean answering the question of why we have trees older than predating written history right in some of these areas. Yeah. It's because it was managed. It was used it specifically to fire adapted ecosystems. This was managed. It attracted game. It invigorated the soil. Some of these uh, species, like uh, I think it's redwoods, giant sequoias. Yeah. Yosemite, right? Yeah. Yep. They're fire dependent. They can't, their cones can't even open and spread seeds unless they have the perfect amount of heat to open them up, right? Wow, that's interesting. The Native Americans, the the indigenous cultures across the entire globe have been doing this, right? Or else we wouldn't have these these trees, right? Wow. These old trees. Now, a hands-off policy in certain contexts? Yes, absolutely. Like if a wilderness area is doing, if lightning strikes in a wilderness area and it's, you know, you're not allowed entry. Okay, fine. What's the fire doing? Is it productive or is it bad? When do we choose to intervene? Is there a wind event coming back through like in two days? Do we need to get in there and hit it small and keep it small? Pick your battles, right? Now, as far as the management process, and I've seen this, I'm, I'm Tahoe, Lake Tahoe is my back door, right? That's like my backyard. When you have over management of forests and ecosystems, it's the same nuclear option. You're gonna get the same result. And we have never learned this over the course of history and it sucks. What does overmanagement look like? Lack of cutting, lack of management, lack of, or sorry, overmanagement as in, uh, the re- overmanagement as in restriction to what you can do. How about got that? Got it, got it. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't touch it, don't do anything. That's probably a poor decision. Yeah. 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 But then again, don't touch it for something that's productive and beneficial. Okay. Yeah. Pick your poison. I mean, it's, it's, it's very contextual it's very nuanced it's what is going to be the best outcome for for that particular situation that forest that time very specific so it sounds like there's no just kind of like government blanket order that's just going to cover everything no there's not and it's up to you know the smarter ologist types biologists um yeah all those folks because you're just you're just the unskilled laborer exactly right? exactly but i've seen the effects of mismanagement <laughs> yeah firsthand right firsthand yeah. i've been there yeah yeah and a lot of people on the boots on the ground will say the same exact thing in fact i had a the a, a gentleman and his wife um melda st Clair and ron boyer ron boyer it was old-timey hotshot like mm-hmm. he's salt dude's got salt he's probably the longest hotshot to ever to hotshot on a hotshot crew. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> it was cool. And uh, he said, 
very two very profound things to me. He said, one, that the fire regime has changed. Every time you step foot off that buggy, off that helicopter skid, off that engine, out of that door of the airplane, if you're jumping in, the the fire environment has changed. It's not the same fight anymore. Back when I was uh, in the height of my career and superintendent on, I think it was Dalton Hotshots, uh, he was saying that like a 20,000 acre fire, that's like a big ass fire. That's a campaign fire. This is like everybody from all the resources from all around the country are coming and convening and to put this thing out, right? Now you're seeing million acre fires. What in the hell is going on? What do you on? even do? What do you do? Yeah. yeah. I mean, granted those million acres, like some of it was very intense. Some of it was like perfect mosaic pattern burn that you would want in that ecosystem. But where do uh, drawing the box, we call it drawing the box around a fire and incident, right? Like, okay, this box, well, the fire escaped here. That box is no longer valid. So you keep drawing bigger boxes around it and like strategically planning where you can uh, hold it, right? The box is infinitely bigger and it's not really necessarily a management thing. It's a combination of fuel loading, weather events, availability of resources, which the federal resources are dwindling in mass numbers because you're not paying them, bearing it back to the whole GS3, $14, $13, $14 an hour thing. It's no wonder why this problem is just it's stuck. It's stuck in a feedback loop, like a negative feedback loop where it's just compounding itself and compounding itself and compounding itself. And it's already too, it's, I don't want to say it's too late, but it will become that if we don't get a, a button on this. Like the 11th hour type situation. Yeah. This is crunch time. And oh. mark my words, if we don't get a handle on this, if we don't start actively managing our forests, we're not going to, I'm not going to say we're not going to have any, but this uh, situation that's going on in New York and New Jersey right now with the smoke. It's going to be a lot more often. Yeah. It's going to be way more frequent. It's going to suck. I mean, shit, the Amazon was burning down two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of it was human starts too, because they're taking that land and they're turning into either mines or cattle grazing areas, you know, and nature's fighting back. You can't fight it. You might as well work with her instead of against her and try and play God. Wow. Yeah. Can you, um, want to just shift gears like to your career and i think this kind of ties in can you speak on the different agencies maybe that you've been a part of and then does each agency have a different approach to their procedure or the way they do things or is it kind of all standardized across the board like hopping from blm to forest service to cal fire to dnr to odf is it all kind of the same rule book do they do things differently I was always curious about that because I, I will hear that guys will sometimes go from like, you know, Fed agency to Fed agency and then you know maybe or from private to Fed agency and state or something like that. And is it like a big deal to transfer? Yeah, no, actually, it's not. Um, even if uh, so, we have this thing as a governing body called the NWCG, the National Wildfire Coordinating Group, right? And they set the bar. It's like the NFPA standards, which you're probably familiar oh, with, yeah. with building oh, yeah. boots, right? Absolutely. So they set the NFPA set standards for PPE, right? NFPA 1977, Seven. which yeah. is not a year, by the way. It's, it's not a year. It's like a, it's a legal code. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people think it's a year. It's not. But anyways, uh, the NWCG standards, that's going to be setting the training and performance, the, the, the typing of crews the minimum requirements for tools, the fitness standards, all of this stuff that defines what a wildland firefighter is and what their qualifications are, all listed under this, right? NWCG standards. And that is that needs to be adhered to federally. It doesn't matter if you're a state resource, a private contractor, a Bureau of Land Management, a parkie, 
forest service it doesn't matter we all operate under the same standards and that creates uniformity with like that paramilitary organization So there is right? a standardization there is there is a standardization which is good i mean granted each different agency is going to have its little nuances like the bureau of land management is for instance they do uh they're a smaller agency. They're not a big organization like the Foresters, right? That's a lot of stuff moving. They can't turn on a dime and pivot. However, they have a little bit more agility. They're a smaller agency, but yeah. they can do a lot more because yeah. they don't have to ask necessarily for permission. The BLM can. That's just for one instance. Yeah. I'm giving that a lot of like a lot of latitude. There. Yeah. I'm being real yeah. generalist right there. It's a smaller agency. Like for instance, the Bureau of Land Management, for for the most part, does localized hiring instead of centralized hiring. Like the Forest Service will do hiring from a Albuquerque Service Center, it controls all of the Forest Service HR. Doesn't matter what your job is, all of it goes through there. Wow. Whereas the Bureau of Land Management, being a smaller agency, they can be like local hiring event. Hey, high school kids, you want to do a exciting career of wildland fire? You, 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 you. Here, fill out this application. Here's the USA Jobs link. This is how you do it. Cool, you're hired. Go on. But no one wants to uh, risk their life for, you know, $15 an hour when they go make $22 an hour flipping burgers at a... Uh, do the feds lose a lot of people to, like, private contractors and state yeah, agencies? 100%. All the time, probably. Yeah, and the, that's where the whole grassroots thing is all about, right? Yeah. I mean, bringing it back to the whole conversation about the foundation, like we were mentioned of, we were mentioning about the, all the pictures all over the walls of yeah. fallen firefighters, right? Uh, a consequence and a fallout of the poor pay, the shitty working conditions, the time away from your family, the going from zero from 120 miles an hour in one direction during the season, being high level operator, right? You're a firefighter, you gotta be dialed in to. Come October, when you're getting laid off, you just slam that truck and practically reverse. It's like you lose your sense of purpose. You lose all of this stuff. And you know what's really chilling, man? It's like when I walk through the hallways, I've got probably upwards of 11 people on those walls. I want to, unfortunately, I want to say like the consequence of all of these like shitty working conditions and all the compounding things like pay and benefits and all the stuff and the, the destruction, the cumulative stress, the the bullshit of working for the government, it De adds up with all of that. Yeah. I want to say two thirds, maybe even three quarters of those 11 people that I know on those walls in the foundation have committed suicide. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's no wonder why, uh, I'm sorry, man. It's real, real. And if it wasn't for the foundation, if it wasn't for grassroots, if it wasn't for folks like you, if it wasn't for uh, Mystery Ranch, folks over at Mystery Ranch, trying to like, one, tell the story of wildland, fire for the wildland firefighters, the struggles that they do, the, the successes that they have, the triumphs, the good, bad, the ugly, indifferent, it doesn't matter. If it wasn't for all these people telling that story, we wouldn't have changed it. But it still has a lot of work to go. Yeah. Yeah. Burke touched on there mental awareness, mental health program that they're doing. It's a real thing. Man. It's a real thing. There's anecdotal evidence out there. Uh, and it's all on it's, The reason why I say anecdotal is because it's not officially documented or studied, yeah. but anecdotal evidence out there saying that wildland firefighters outpace the military per capita for suicide. Wow. Wow. What are we doing to ourselves? Something not good. Wow. There's a lot of changes that need to be had, but it's far too too large and yeah. too many of them is the yeah. amount of them is like just not any one person can do it so it takes an army well we i guess thank god a little more than for people like burke and the foundation and 
their whole mental mental health and mental awareness shift. He told me that that was something that was, I don't want to say newer because it's not, but the maybe focus on it has increased. And he also mentioned that just recently with, he, he brought into kind of play the change of generation, change of culture, phones, social media, younger people. It's kind of, he, he mentioned that it feels like it's heightened. Just it this, is. this thing with, the, the seriousness of mental health has just really become a lot more heavy is, is, is kind of the way that he described it. I think it's also because of, for instance, like this is how bad of a problem is. And the only reason why I say that is bring it back to the anchor point podcast, right? Every single one of my guests, every single one of them has brought up mental health un, un like cued. Yeah. Not prompted. I don't script any of my shit. It's all unedited. It's all long form. It's, unscripted it's not a coincidence it's not a coincidence that every single i would call it 98 percent of my guests have brought up mental health and the concerns of mental health on their own volition that tells me that there's not a problem but a fucking crisis yeah yeah it's nothing new that the foundation has been doing they've been doing this for years however the culture and the perspective i think has changed to where it's more acceptable to be public about it yeah and i Every one of my guests that has brought up the topic and they've shared some very, very deep stories with me, like publicly, globally. That's that's amazing. I think it's becoming more accepted. Like the 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 culture for the longest time was shut up and dig. Your problems are your own. Don't come to me with problems unless you got a solution, right? And that is the same thing for mental health. It's like it's like people that fought in World War II, why did they not have the same mental health fallout? that soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan do today. What do you think the answer to that is? I don't know, but I have a theory. Sure. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a mental health clinician, sure. but I do have a theory and it's been high, It's been like talked about by a couple of my mental health clinician friends, like doctorates of psychology, right? They had time to decompress. We didn't have the speed of information. We didn't have the speed of travel. We didn't have the luxury of expediting every little action that we do for efficiency like we do today back then, right? Soldiers fighting in the European front, they had to sail back to the Atlantic with their unit. And what are you going to do on a ship when you're locked up on a cargo ship? For weeks. For weeks. Weeks. You're going to talk about shit. You're going to say the quiet part out loud and you're going to confide just like basically like what we're doing right here, right? Wow. We don't have that convenience today. We don't have that that time. We don't have that kick it into the crawl gear and and talk about this shit. And it's, I, I want to say that we had a harder generation back then. I mean, there's 15 year olds over there you know, like yeah. getting the Medal of Honor. Like yeah, we want to talk about that. the European front. Shit, look at what happened in the Pacific. I think life was more demanding in that time. And I think that there was less, um, not, not the word luxury. That's not the right word. There was less... the word that comes to mind is like it was less lackadaisical 60, 70, 80 years ago and there was I think more demands on younger people sooner than there maybe is today. Yeah. Yeah. I I could agree with that too. Yeah. But at the end of the day they still have the time to decompress. That's the biggest thing. Also, I mean you you didn't have an overload of ridiculous amount of information at your fingertips all the time every single moment of every day. What happens to you when you go to a concert and you see a concert and there's millions of people, like not millions of people, but a couple thousand people looking at the same thing and they all got their Snapchat out. They all got their Instagram out. It dehumanizes everything. Not only that, but the bandwidth of your cell phone. If you're trying to make a phone call during that time, 
good luck. You're not going to get a text message out because yeah. the network's yeah. overloaded. Yeah. Now, flip that script onto what we're receiving as humans with the speed of information coming at you at the speed of light. Yeah. Your network's getting up- uploaded, but the network is your own brain. Wow. That's my theory on that. And bringing it back to the foundation, like I said, this is nothing new. They're just, it's, I think it's just more culturally acceptable to talk about this stuff and like push for the proper things that we need. Cause not talking about it, not having peer support, not having, you know, the stigma. I, I think that's a good thing. So what about, what about you? Where are you at with this? I want to say that because of the podcast, it's accelerated all the guests that have brought up this topic and very, they're talking about very deep, intimate things. Like I did a, a Lucas, for instance, with uh, Mystery Ranch. He's talked about very deep, intimate moments of contemplating his own life. Dude, it literally had a gun in his mouth. Same thing with my buddy Walker. He used to be my assistant superintendent on Ely Hell Attack. Same fucking thing, man. But to say that out loud to a global audience, one that takes the most insane, insane amount of courage. Yeah. But if it could help one person, let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. That is the ultimate form of mentorship that I could ever even perceive yeah also an insane amount of security in yourself and just in your identity that hey i went through that and there's a light on the other end yeah. yeah i mean that too it's like it's like it's it's relieving for them too i think i think it's like a clo- not a closure. for the person sharing but yeah. yeah it's could like you, closure yeah. yeah could you imagine that burden being lifted off yeah, your chest by, i can yeah 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 it's it's almost when you i don't want to say it's not admitting because you didn't do anything wrong but it's just you know darkness can't be where there's light so anytime the light shines in it's like the darkness goes away so it's if you open up to certain things it is almost liberating to just you know just kind of getting it off of your chest well, that's very that's very heavy so are you how long have you been out of fire i've been out of fire for four years so yeah, you're decompression so i used to have actually anxiety and like not necessarily like I, i'm not going to say ptsd because it's it's become a buzzword right Wearing a pack, wearing a backpack, something as simple as that backpack I, I, I walked out of the airport with when I got in your yeah, truck, right? Yeah. I used to have anxiety because I was putting on work. My office wasn't sitting at a desk, like building bitching videos for anybody, you know? It wasn't that. It was being out in the woods wearing 40 pounds of shit on my back and possibly a chainsaw and trying to dodge rocks that are falling down the hill, trying to keep awareness of where my crew's at, all that stuff, right? So whenever I got, when I got out of fire and I'd wear a backpack, something as innocuous as a backpack, it'd give me like extreme anxiety, wow. extreme anxiety. Cause I was in work brain mode, right? That was my office. I put my office on and wore it, right? You know what helped me the most, man? Inadvertently fly fishing. It's meditation, man. It's a very meditative thing that you do. You're out in nature. You're grounded. You're in the water. You're like, if you're free waiting without waders on, you're like connected with the earth. You take your shoes off and like fuck around. And like, it's very rhythmic motion. It's like no different than a Tibetan monk doing mm-hmm. some sort of, some sort of meditation, man. And I was always wearing my, uh, my, my backpack doing it. And I think that inadvertently like helped heal that anxiety the connection between the pack and the bad experience now it's a pack and a good experience it's something that i enjoy it's not something that i'm in threat of my life of it's a really nice um just illustration 
because I can think of similar, you know, for, for, for someone else, it, it's, I don't know what, you know, it's driving and whatever, but like, that's, that's a really good, that's really nice. So you, you took that thing that was, I didn't even know I was doing it. Wow. Yeah. But I took that, 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 that thing, which was <laughs> intimately connected with my, a source of, uh, a source of anxiety and like, yeah, it just, it was very healing, man. And so I had no idea until I talked to a therapist about it. Wow. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's essentially EMDR, just different. <laughs> yeah. So post, you know, four years now out of fire, are you in a better place than you were mentally when you were even in the middle of your fire season? Are you like in, in the middle of your career? Are you still going through decompression stuff? Do you still feel like you're still getting things out? Has, how has the podcast just, you know, talking to all these people, hearing their stories, you know, cause I bet there's actually even added things because you've, all these episodes, all these stories, all these people, you probably know more about the fire world and maybe even the common wild than firefighter just because you've been so much around all these people. Yeah, and these people, you know, dwarf experience for, of mine. They dwarf it, you know, by decades. A lot of these folks that are on the podcast, I only have 11 years in the game and some of these people have 30, 40 years in the game, well, 35 years in the game. And it's hearing their stories and having them share some of that stuff and like letting me even know that I'm not alone if I'm getting that effect, like who else is out there getting that effect? Like I said, if it helps one person, man, it's hundred percent worth it. It's a win, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've learned probably arguably more about fire, especially the culture and what makes us tick and just fire in general. I mean, from interviewing people, it's like that whole old adage of like, Hey, if you want to really learn something, teach it. I don't know if you ever heard yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's the best way to get to master something. Yeah. Teach yeah. it, right? Yeah, teach it. Yeah. It feels like um I'm not teaching anybody. I'm not going to like say I'm a subject master, master at anything. I'm not. However, the people that I've had the luxury and the privilege of interviewing have taught me an immense amount and being able to regurgitate that out to a global audience, man, that's that pretty is special. special, man. I'm very um, very thankful for everybody. That, yeah, that's like Gold. That's gold. Um, business marketing world compared to wild and fire world. <laughs> no comparison. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, you know, do you enjoy this other side of life now? I do actually. It took it. I mean, I still got my ticks. I still got like, kind of like, I hate using the word trigger, but I still have like the little things that stress me out. Like, uh, if there's like a situation that I know I can't problem solve through and it's like, like take for instance, my kids, right. If, uh, I had a real hard time, when they're like screaming and there's nothing you can do about it, they're just pissed. They just want to scream for the sake of screaming. There's yeah, nothing wrong with yeah, them. They're yeah. no, they're not hungry. They're not hot. They're not whatever. They're not in pain. They didn't hurt. Themselves. Total emotional experience. They're yeah. just having a fucking meltdown. Yeah, right. Yeah. I would always invent uh, instantaneously like default to that, like fix the problem mode. Right. And it took me, it's, I still struggle with it, but I've gotten better, but you want to fix that problem. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's one of those stressors that kind of still gets me. Um, another thing that I still think kind of makes my hair stand up is uh, if I'm watching like a TV show, especially if they have tone outs, like when they dispatch a, a, a call, like a fire, they have what's called a tone out. And it's like a tone that is a identifier of your station or your unit or your battalion or whatever that goes before the actual like size up of the fire and like location and all that stuff, right? The, the dispatch. Okay. If I hear that on the TV, I'm just like, I got like, look around. I'm like, oh wait, this is not fire. Wow. It's, it's weird. It's like the little shit that gets you right. 
trees creaking in the forest. You want to see like a lot of wildland firefighters and trees smoke a lot of wildland firefighters like falling trees. Like take a group of uh, former wildland firefighters out in the woods and go for a recreational hike during yeah. a light wind, yeah, like sure. a, a light breeze and sure. see how many trees creak. And there'd be like looking for widow makers, <clears throat> looking for falling trees. Wow. It's weird, but you don't, the culture is like, yeah, you kind of like, it's like, it's like the whole being a, a man thing or just being like the, the, the tough individual, right? You have expectations to uphold. You have to be calm under pressure. It's like, like a medic, you know, responding to an emergency scene or a, a big red fire, you know, like structure fire department going to a, a, a vehicle accident, right? Or a structure fire. Calm as a Hindu cow when they're going through that incident. Yeah. But what is that doing? Where are you burying that? How do you, how do you, unbury that and address it and the culture for the longest of time man it's just been yeah just bury it deep down and that's why you have the problems with suicide depression self-medication with drugs and alcohol divorce rate skyrockets it's it's no wonder because yeah. you just don't want to talk about it if i can share a, a small part of my experience in dealing with wildland firefighters as customers <clears throat> the overwhelming in and obviously in every single industry and market and career there's you always have your bad apples in everything. So oh, yeah. you can't ever get away from that anytime. It's just but like a shitty hot cr shot crew versus a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. They exist. There's good doctors, bad doctors, good lawyers, bad lawyers, good cops, bad cops. But the let's talk about just my wildland firefighters. The overwhelming majority of wildland firefighters, guys and gals, are just, they're, they're a pleasure as customers. They're a pleasure to work with. They're so wonderfully simple people. Um, what I mean by that is the, the, it, you get exactly what you see. There's yeah. no games or... They got nothing to hide. They got nothing to hide. Super transparent people, easy customers, most of the time, the overwhelming majority, you know, and, and they just, they like quality. They want a good product. And so... Yeah, buy we, once, cry once. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's a nice marriage because we provide a good product. You want a nice product? Great. And so just, it's fun to do that, to, to, to go to these shows and academies and travel out and go and fit crews and stuff. I was, I was just um, in California fitting some crews and it's, it's cool. Um, the, the most recent one that I was at, they, they were grilling chicken and they, they grilled me some chicken too. Oh know? yeah, dude. So it was cool. You know, it's just, um, good people, good spirited people, good natured, good hearted people, um, guys and gals, um, very just, it, it, it's weird. It's almost like that th you're, you would expect that there's going to be this like super level of like, which not that there isn't, but almost like so much like professionalism and all like military is like, it's military. You know? Yeah. It's like you're standing the, in right, uniform right, right, you know, and regiment. And, and most stuff, military yeah. guys are always like, you know, they don't talk very much and it's like, you know, down to the you know, right to the point, not no frills. And it was surprising, you know, a lot of wildland, it's almost like, man, if I didn't know you weren't a wildland firefighter, I would just think that you're just a mature, just adult person. And you don't even know that this guy, you know, seven months out of the year, eight months is out there, you know, risking his life doing crazy things. It's just, it's, it's, it's so interesting. They just seem like your regular neighborhood guy who just, and he's doing this life risking crazy job. So it was a very cool experience. And I've, I've always done customer service here. So I've always like been on the phones and emails and stuff. And overwhelmingly, it's always pleasant phone calls, pleasant emails, easy to communicate with, easy customers, like, so that's really cool. And so I think that speaks a lot into just the culture that wildland firefighting invites and the type of people that it attracts. Mm -hmm. And I think it attracts your, your 
your your common man who just like wants to work hard and loves nature, loves the environment, loves serving. You know, they're super servant people. They're they're risking their lives for this stuff. So it was a it was a cool glimpse into that. Whereas, you know, I could pick on other industries where it's almost like if you build out for me like the personality, I could almost guess maybe what what kind of profession they do. And I don't yeah. I don't know why that is. It's oh, just stereotypes that exist with everything, man. But it's yeah, like yeah. The tech bro, I'm I'm right, one of them, right. but I'm also not right. <laughs> exactly, you know, and and I, it's 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 just something that is just it's just there. But like if you if you if I had to name the personality for uh, like a wildland firefighter, it's respectful, kind, down to earth, and I, I use the word simple in a positive context where there's no frills or like masks or like some kind of hidden agenda. V- extremely transparent people. So that was that's been a really cool experience that I've had, and it's like a pleasure to. Mm-hmm even deal with this customer base and, and, and market, you know, so to speak. And like, as, as we've been growing over the years, you know, you, you kind of now have this thing where it's like, okay, we have like almost, we have our general customer base, which is all, all of our people. Yeah. But then within that customer base, you have your markets and you have your, your groups and, and you have your, your community and whatever word you want to use. And, and we always speak about the wild and fire community as its own individual group customer base because and we treat them specifically that that way you know wick we don't like for example you know if you have a a, um hvac electrician plumber framer roofer cider it's like you would just say okay that's construction yeah if you have an arborist a lineman you know and whatever kind of okay that's the climbing guys climbing because they need kind of the same kind of product and then maybe you have a welder fabricator machinist mechanic you foreman. might a foreman, yeah. You would yeah. kind of group them together because it's concrete floor, oil, whatever, little communities. But the wildland firefighting one, you can't put anything else in there. And I don't put anything else in there because not only is the profession specific, but the type of individual is like specific as well. And we just, we like, we're like, no, like we're going to treat these people. We're going to have a specific a specific product it's a specific base it's a specific list of individuals and it's like it's so special and so important to our business model and it's important to like our base that we we put it in its own category and you kind of have to though you, you kind of have to yeah i mean how where do you it's it's not a, a wrench it's not a screwdriver it's not yeah. a it's not a hammer it's a swiss army knife right yeah yeah exactly it is literally and so it's so cool to see that and like i said they're very special people good people like and it's it's almost maybe this is too far, but I feel like I can. But I feel like if somebody calls in and you start talking to them, I feel like within the first ten or fifteen seconds, I can almost tell yeah. if this is a firefighter or if it's not. I don't know what it is. I just think it's the way that they kind of talk and carry themselves, and I, I just, it's almost like you can. T- and also, I feel like I can tell if this is a guy who's been a seasoned firefighter for twenty years. Because usually they kind of all say the same stuff. They're always kind of like, <laughs> they have yeah, a man, you know, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, man, you, you got fire boots on the shelf, black rough outs. You know, they use that term. No, you got the black <laughs> rough outs. Yeah, I do. I'm attendee and everyone's attendee, you know, or whatever. It's like, you know, it's like, that seems like it's that's just like, the, no. it's, yeah, <laughs> it's just like they know they're so I've been 11 and e my whole life or whatever, you know, and so it's funny. It's cool. And I love that type of customer because they know what they want. They know what they're after and they're easy and it's simple and they know what they're getting themselves into. It's just cool. So for us as a business, the wildland fire community has been nothing but a blessing. We built JK boots on the wildland fire community and oh, yeah. the ability for, I think other customers now to just, they're, they're, you know, they're coming in to our, our business and 
and now we, we get to service other professions and trades too. It's so cool as well. But like the core or like the 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 middle, the 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 meat of it has been and is to this day this logger wildland fire individual. It's like the Venn diagram that circles wildland fire, right? Right. right yeah. Right. And so super grateful, forever grateful to the community. And like for all the other guys, because obviously, like you just mentioned, there's 60,000 wildland firefighters. And right? there's heavy expectations with wildland firefighters too. Extremely heavy expectations. Oh, yeah. And obviously, there's way more people in America that are not wildland firefighters than are wildland firefighters. But you can take wildland firefighter stuff and put it into 100%. Yeah, the rest. And of that. so it's almost like. Thanks for the demand that logging and firefighting put on this product that we met the demands of that product. And now people who aren't necessarily from those trades almost get to like reap the benefit of having to create a product that met those demands. If that made sense, what I just oh, said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, you know, could, could you have gotten away with a cheaper boot for a mechanic, a diesel mechanic? Yes, you could have. But because we had to meet this demand, now this diesel mechanic gets to like oh wow look what's available now to me that might not have been available if there wasn't this insane job that was out in the fire in the you know forest for 21 days straight fighting fire sleeping in their boots like and you know day in day out eating that turd sandwich exactly you know whatever so it's just kind of a cool thing to see and like even going way back in the the, the day i mean we're talking hundreds of years ago boot culture if you do boot history and stuff like who was wearing logger boots there's a reason they're called logger boots Loggers. Loggers. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're, so, they're built for a mission, right? Yes, they're built for exactly. A purpose. They're built for a purpose. And so that whole history there is cool. It's just, I would have, you know, maybe someone from the third world, you know, third, third party would never have thought that a wildland firefighter and a bootmaker would have so much, I want to say in common. Oh yeah, but, dude. I mean like that discussion that we had last time uh, I saw you over in Reading. Dude. Yeah. We just like, we just bullshitted for like what, three or four for hours. It was like three or four hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it was all just literally boot and fire talk and I've got a million stories I could tell you about seeing how our boots are worn out on the fire. And I'm sure you do too, how you've seen just, I am so sorry know. for every rebuild that I've ever seen because <laughs> <laughs> I thrash my boots and yeah. Yeah, dude, the, it, it's endless, you know, and it's just, it's cool to see the connection. And um, yeah, I mean, even like when boots come back for repairs and stuff. And so like, I want to say that we get a pretty big influx of repairs in the fall and then like just kind of, and then it kind of trickles in over the winter. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, guys are kind of winding the season down and whatever. It's the off season. They have and the yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we get a lot of pairs all year round because we have a lot of other different customers. But in general, you see an influx of repairs around that end of the fire season because it's just like all the firefighters are done and they kind of just start sending their stuff in. And when you open up a box that is from a firefighter. There's a distinct smell. An extremely yeah. distinct smell. And it's not a nasty smell. It's the smell of just fire smoke, wildland fire smoke. It probably smells like a little bit of sweat a lot of like ash and smoke. Yeah. And don't forget chew and chew. chew. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, <laughs> that too. A lot of that, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what it's kind of like, it's like, do you have a smoker? Yeah. Yeah. Like a Traeger. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when you open up that yeah. smoker, yeah. but it's like super intense. Yes. It's but like there's that thick. leather smell yep. in it too. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So like, you know, I, when we had a smaller space, I just remember like you, you get like 15 boxes or something. It's all fire boots and, they're all opened up and you know ready to get, and it's like this shop borderline smells kind of like some fire, like some smoke. You know, it's it just smells cool. like a hot shot. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just cool. So it was, it was, it, it's so awesome to see the connection, how synonymous firefighting and like this boot business has been. And it's again, it's something that you wouldn't really think of or know unless you were like in it. But mm-hmm. it's just been, it's just been really, really cool. And one of the most pleasurable things I think is to when people say that, dude, like. You're, I mean, 
my feet are my money makers. And if I didn't have these boots, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. Like, that's cool. That feels good. You know, I'm not a firefighter and I'm not out there risking my life, but it's cool to be a part of the, to be a part of the, the, the process. It just, there's, there's some fulfillment there and it feels nice. I bet you're learning a shit ton about wildland fire culture, even by being connected literally with the earth and the wild and all the time. Right. All we, we've, we talked about that on that podcast too. Like oh, remember yeah. we talk, how, first of all, how small the community is. Right? I it's told you all small. about that, you know, and even I know that and I'm oh, not yeah. even, I'm not even a firefighter, <laughs> but yes, I've learned a lot about the community and the culture and just the way that they do life. And I think I brought up on the last episode when we did back then on the anchor point, but um, literally I can, like I literally had a situation where I think I was on the phone with a guy from New Mexico and we were talking about something, uh, some kind of boot order, and some kind of color combination. The next day, some guy from Oregon calls me, and he's like, hey, so you you can do this color combination? My friend just told me about it from, you know, I was like, okay. You know. Like, a one, like a gray upper with like a rough Whatever, brown. Whatever, something crazy yeah. it was, you know? And I was like, okay, chance, they're just buddies. Yeah. Then I get a call, like two days after that, Southern Idaho. Then I'm at a show in Ruidoso, Ruidoso, New Mexico. Yeah. And it was like all four or five of those guys all knew each other. And they were just like <laughs> bumping into each other. And they were like talking about, oh, yeah, I put in this JK order. And like, you know, it's like, that's just crazy. That's That doesn't really happen in any other industry. And, or like I'll be at a fire academy and I'll see this guy who I saw back in Bastrop, Texas two years ago. He's like, oh, I ordered boots from you back then, remember? And I'm in Oregon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a small, connected, tight-knit community that spans over seven, eight, or nine states. It's just so cool. It's just so cool. I think it's really cool. Uh, it, yeah, and yes, it is very small, and word travels fast. And uh, as you probably know, I mean, it's it, it's it's like, oh, yeah, you heard about it. I mean, you just said it, right? The the This color way of boots yeah, with yeah. the different color lasts and the different yeah, yeah, bottom yeah, yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that stuff, right? Or the different upper and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, it's, you know how they say there's like six degrees of separation between like you and the rest of the world, right? And yeah. you know, everybody between <clears throat> yeah. six people with firefighters, wildland, it's even structure, yeah, wildland firefighters and firefighters, even the medical, sometimes even the military, it's like two degrees of separation, but fire yeah. is like, it's a small community, but everybody knows everybody like pretty much if it wasn't for like a handful of people that I kept like running into, it's like here here's how small fire is right my uh captain uh my captain he actually took a detail for the afos position the assistant fire operations supervisor for the carson city district right because i went full circle in my career right i started in carson city went and gallivanted around the country did my thing and then came back to exact place the exact same place that i started in doyle california i was the engineer or the operator uh it's like the fire fire apparatus engineer right he was the captain and we started there roughly the same time and we both came back to that place. It's like, how, how the hell did this happen? It's like, so funny. Yeah. It's just coming full circle, but it was cool. He's like one of my best friends, right? Joe Bronson, shout out to you, dude. And then it's like the things that, uh, like, uh, Chris Byrne, another guy that I had known for Doyle and that dude taught me how to run an engine like fantastically. Like this dude was dialed. He was kind of an asshole, but he was like, he's one of those people that was like the mean dad, right? Who meant well, cared about you more than others, actually, but just exuberated a certain way. Yeah. Yes, he was so goddamn hard on me. He was just riding my ass. He was just like so hard on me and like teaching me how to do this. But you know what? I never forgot a word he said, and he taught yeah. me how to be an engine operator to that day. That's I awesome. Mean, the things I learned from this guy is awesome, and it's like coming back full circle and hanging out with him. It's like 
He's like, yeah, bro. Sorry. I was so, uh, so hard on you, but I just wanted to see you succeed. Cause I see something in you. I'm like, dude, that like, that's awesome. Mm, that pulls at your heartstrings. But yeah, the people that you meet like Academy, like if, <laughs> if, if it wasn't for Academy and like some of my friends, like I wouldn't have started an anchor point. I, I wouldn't know. It's like, wow. how come there's not a, a podcast or wildfire? It's like, hold my beer, watch this. And it was like one of those things, yeah. a conversation over a couple of beers, we call it mop up talk, you know, mm-hmm. like the stuff that you don't see on like vice TV or <laughs> the documentaries and stuff like that. It's the, the quiet part. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if it wasn't for all this interconnectedness and like how you're tied in, even extension of you, right? You're yeah. connected with the foundation. You're connected with Mystery Ranch. You're connected with Hotshot Brewery. You're connected with Grassroots. Yep. yep. All of that stuff, right? Yep. That's how small it is. And it's, yeah. it's, it's just oddly funny how everybody knows each other and how yeah. we all support each other in different ways. Because I think you don't know unless you're in it. Yes. Y- it, you just don't. You yeah. just don't. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know until I, until I, you know, quote unquote, got into it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, you're just unaware. We were talking about it when we were driving over here, like as, a, and I've told this to Burke too, like a million times as a child, Spokane, I remember, so I grew up born and raised Spokane all my life, never lived anywhere else. Mm-hmm. We did not have fire or what I mean we did in the outstanding outlanding, you know, surrounding area. Right? It wasn't but like in the wildland urban interface. No, it yeah. was not close to home at all. Smoke in the city. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, smoke in the yeah, city. What do you yeah. mean? If, if there's some structure fire and you see a big red fire truck, okay, I get it. But outside of that, nothing. I remember probably around age 14, we started getting a couple days of smoke. Like, you know, when it's smoky, the sun is like red, like a red oh, dot, yeah. you know, I don't know what that's called, but like, that's just what happens when it gets super smoky, right? It's a very distinct look. Yeah. It's a very distinct look. And oh, yeah. it was like borderline. Like, is this the, is this Armageddon right now? Like what <laughs> oh, is happening? Is this the rapture? Is this going to yeah, happen? Like, and know, like, what's getting, going on you know, here? Go to church and get right with the Lord. Real quick, you know, so, <laughs> um, and it, it was like, that was new. That was so weird. And the summers were, ho- were hotter than normal, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, happened one summer. Okay, we're like, whatever. That's a fluke. Second summer in a row. Third summer in a row. And we're like, okay, well, I guess this is now just a norm. And then you actually start seeing it on the news. Oh, USFS, uh, USFS firefighters attacking local fire. Yeah. What the hell is even that? I don't even know. USFS? What even is? Like, as a 15-year-old kid, I don't even is know. Like what, a, is this like an army branch? Yeah, yeah. What, I don't even something? know. Is this, did they mobilize the National Guard? Like, which, actually, I guess that happens, too. It does. Apparently. It does. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even know that either. Oh, yeah. Anyways, and then, like you said, green buggies. Is that is that waste management? Like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just, this is just, I'm just exposing the disconnect between the common individual Unless it's like in your area, unless it's in your, I guarantee you, seventy-five percent of America does not know what what the hell we're talking about. Oh, I guarantee you that. It's like that conversation we're having on the way over here. It's like it's like if I was wearing my greens, my Nomex, right, my PPE, and my crew shirt in the store, and if I if I was in the grocery store, like getting lunch or whatever, and on my way to work or like a gas station stop or whatever, and Joe Public decides to ask, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" It's like wearing a uniform. It's like. Yeah, I'm a wildland firefighter. And the first two things that they automatically resort to is like, oh, so you're a smoke, smoke jumper, jumper or you're Cal Fire. Yeah. Ah, no one yeah. knows yeah. now, like, yeah. right? It yeah. kind of piques your interest because smoke jumpers, like everybody knows what a smoke jumper does. It's like the special forces yeah. of, the, of the wildland firefighter. The Navy thing. SEAL of yeah. the wildland firefighter, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Barrel-chested sky gods, whatever you want to call yeah. them, right? Um everybody knows that because it's, it's glorious, right? It's, it's, it's enchanting. It's, there's like a sex appeal to, yeah. to that. Right. Yeah. 
no one knows what a repeller is. No one knows what a hotshot is. And, and this is the, the fucked up thing too, is like no one knew what a hotshot was until the only the brave. Yeah. The, the only the brave and the Gee. granite mountain yeah. tragedy when we lost 19 firefighters. Yeah. Right. That's the only thing that put hotshots on the map. That sucks. That's sad. Yet we have this long sorted history of people dying in entrapments and like tragedy fires like South Canyon, like Esperanza, all this stuff. Right. Yet no one knows what they do. Or they ask you if you're Cal Fire. Yeah. Because like I was saying, what is Cal Fire? They're a PR, PR agency. With the fire department. They tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. They got a firefighting side hustle, but they're very much so, much so a PR agency. So it's kind of unfair because as a kid, every, everybody wanted to be a firefighter, but not, not wildland. Yeah. Firefighters don't have beards. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it's so, so firefighting was always synonymous with the red truck and slide slide down a pole and you know all that kind of stuff so dalmatians and shit you see in kids cartoons yeah exactly i think that i I really liked when you were driving here you said this thing about cal fire how it's like a pr firm so to speak i i i like that and i think that that's like amazing that they do that and they do it really well um do you wish that other departments also did that i do because there's if there was more awareness grassroots wouldn't have to exist with the pay. The, do you really believe that? I a hundred percent do. People don't even know like the complexities of wildfire. People don't know what we do. People don't know the importance of wildfire and they don't know why these things even start. There's only like really two reasons wildfires start either human or natural cause. But so a lot of people don't know that this thing with grassroots and the progress that they've made and then the goals that they have. I mean, do you, first of all, I mean, do, do you think that literally lawmakers would change their, their tone if the public was just more aware of what was going Like, would it really be that so connected? I, I want to say yes. Wow. Awareness is going to be three quarters of the battle and the other quarter is probably going to be stories, storytelling, like personal firsthand accounts of like, hey, if X were to change, I wouldn't have to do Y. Or if Y were to change, B would not have to happen, right? Yeah. Like how do we attract it? How we, how we have a long history of traditions and the way we do business and firefighting is not going to change. I mean, yeah, there'll be some new tech that gets invented. Cool. That's all right. Whatever. I'm part of that crowd. I get it. And it's necessary. Right. But at the end of the day, fire is put out by this, your hands and your brain. And now if we don't have this legacy behind us, passing on the knowledge to the next generation because there's no next generation or there's not enough numbers to sustain that next generation of future firefighters, then where the hell are we going to do? We're losing generational knowledge, like hundreds of years of generational firefighting, wildland firefighting knowledge over the recent course of history because people can't afford to live, man. And it's either between mental health your quality of life and pay, those are people, that's going to be the major reasons why people are leaving. So when you have that person like I was, I'm one of those people. I have 11 years. I started my perm career and I don't even get to pay into retirement until I'm a perm, right? So I spent six years as a temporary seasonal. Then I did a few, a handful of years, as five years as a permanent, right? I only got five years of retirement, yet I've done 11 years. That's half of your 20 and out. You don't have to do 20 years of your service and then you go qualify for an annuity and all your retirement, your fire retirement, all that stuff, right? If you get into this job at like 18, 20 years old, 20 years is not that far. Yeah. And then you keep building on it. If you want to increase that longevity out to 30 years, now you got a higher top three because you're moving up the chain. You got 
more money in the bank with your TSP. You got all this stuff. But when you have to spend so many effing years spinning your wheels and not getting the professional level of treatment, because this is a professional job, you can't take just Joe Schmo off the street and throw him out in the wildfire and say, good luck with the Pulaski. Yeah. You can't yeah. do it, right? I, yeah. I, the leadership and stuff involved and the, the the operational knowledge that takes, there's not really a formal school for it that yeah. is, but it's not like you're going to a fire academy. You do in some sense, but it's all hands-on knowledge. It's very tactile. It's very intuitive. Yeah. It's crazy, man. We're losing that. Give me some grace with what I'm about to say. Okay. But I have a I have a theory. And my theory is that I want it to change, but I don't know if I believe that it will to the dream that we all have, like grassroots have. And the reason that I say that is because, let me let me start with this, that just being in, even in the business world, I've just seen how, what actually moves money and what actually, what, what actually moves the market? You know, it's yeah. like what, what, what's actually ch- turning the wheels of, of market and industry and innovation and sales and revenue and job creation and job loss and it's it's really like is there something to gain? Is there is there is there money to be made? Is there something to gain? Is there a prize to win? And unfortunately, I think that because a wildland, the threat of wildland fire is not. You could argue that it is, but it's not a direct. It's a distant problem. It's a distant problem. That's a good way to say it. Number two, you, you, the government can't make money. Private businesses can't really make money. You can argue there's small nuance. Burn bot. JK boots, but that's, that's tiny compared to what's actually out there. Yeah. Trillions of dollars of budget for the forest service. Exactly. Right. 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 So I think for those two reasons and others, it's like, it's not a hot enough topic and it doesn't matter enough to the market for there to actually be serious change and movement. And I'm going to agree with you. Yeah. That's a hard truth and hard pill to swallow. It is a hard truth and it's a hard uh, pill to swallow, but what happens if we don't? There's that back to selling what ifs thing, right? It's too distant of a problem though. It is. It's, it's, that is not a... No one cares. So that's rude, but no one cares. No, nobody in downtown San Francisco or Sacramento or LA gives a flying shit about something that's going on in central Nevada or Washington. I'll, I'll even or, take a step further. They yeah. don't care about the, the you, they don't care about you either. They don't, they don't care, care about, about the 50,000 firefighters they because don't. it's insignificant and it doesn't matter and it's not there and it's not the latest thing and it's not tied to a billion dollar industry. It just, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Like, uh, but here's the caveat to that, right? You're going to, so you start a business and you grow older and you're successful and you want your little slice of heaven. Every person on this planet, if you have the right circumstances and you say you, live the little slice of the American dream that everybody's after and you want to buy your piece of slice, your slice of heaven, or you want to go out and hunt and yeah, enjoy the this, woods out, away from the city, away yeah, from yeah. what you call home. Right. Right. Or if right, you want right, to buy right, a piece right. of that, it's not a matter of if wildfire will affect you. It's a matter of when, and if you don't think that wildland fire affects you currently, well, just look around, look at the PM 2.5s in the air that's causing cancers. It's literally shaving years off your life every summer. <laughs> That's crazy, actually. Wow, I never thought about that. No one thinks about the secondary, tertiary, or quaternary effects of wildfire, right? So you look at California, right? Because California is Hollywood Central, right? Every fire pornographer, that's a quote to shout out to my buddy Gabriel. 
uh, man, he's got his, uh, he's got his documentary coming out. It's called hot shot. It's great. Anyways, he calls them fire pornographers and everybody's like just swarming like the most yeah. insignificant things. Right. Yeah. And just getting a media click out of it because that's how they get paid. I understand that there's an economy right behind that. Unfortunately, it's disaster economy, tragedy economy, but that's how media works. That's what gets hits and it sucks. But the things that we don't think about is what's the long-term effects of those fires, right? You have a ripping fire go through the Santa Cruz mountains, right? You're taking away the stability of the soil. Not only are you losing homes and making the insurance skyrocket, the premiums in insurance uh, skyrocket, you're destroying like heirloom family ranches. You're destroying the treasures of the individual. But now you have entire communities that are either displaced, dis well, one displaced. They have to come back and rebuild. But two, now they are not reinsurable because they've designated this as a fire prone area and it's too high of a risk to insure or the premiums just go through the freaking roof and it's unaffordable to have fire insurance. Secondarily to that, that fire rips through there, disturbs the soil, takes away all of that stuff that's holding the land literally together, right? Now you have rock slides, you have mudslides, you have all this erosion stuff. You have downstream poisoning of fish because of all of this like soot, ash, dirt, and debris going in and clogging up the waterways. Like, why don't we think about that shit? Look, I, I believe Nobody you and you're, you're right. But it's a distant problem. Yeah, I'm you're agreeing right. with you. You're right. Like, I can't tell you how, how right and factual everything. You, and I bet you if we went and pulled up a laptop right now and we deep dived every point that you said, we would find more supporting evidence. You're right. Yes. I, I, let me play the part of a just money focused person. I, I don't care. I know. Yeah. I, I, I really know. don't care because I can't make a buck. I might make a buck in 10 years, but I'm not going to make a buck now. Yeah. yeah. That's like sick and like messed up and that's not how I operate. That's not how I think, but I'm just, I'm, I'm playing in the mind of the market. Like, you know, that's why I, that's why it's like sad. And I, I guess I don't know even what solution to give. I think what grassroots has done, actually the fact what grassroots has accomplished is, is borderline a miracle. It is a miracle. We've moved mountains in the last four years. Yeah. And so that's like incredible. The fact With that probably a so sport, much a plastic territory. one of that. Yeah, exactly. So them doing that gives me a lot of hope that they'll be able to go further but I just don't know, like when, like when is it gonna, when is gonna, it's gonna hit the spot where it's like, listen, okay, like there was enough grace for 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 this much change to happen, but then it's like, okay, done because where does the buck stop, right? Yeah, exactly. Because now the focus is, you know, AI, the next Kardashian, and <laughs> AI is not gonna solve your cancer. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> See, I wish people thought thought about that too. They don't. I mean, that's. I mean, I'm just as guilty of it, right? I yeah. mean, I human nature. It's very hard to see past what's right in front of you, right? Yeah. Or the immediate future, not the long term. You can't. You can't comprehend that it's too far in the future, right? It hasn't even, happened. Yet. Even I have a hard time with. Okay, what's the, one of the biggest selling points of our? Let's non-fire. What's one of the biggest selling points of our product? It's the longevity. Yeah. You buy quality, a pair of boots. Right? Yeah, quality and longevity. You buy a pair of boots and it's not going to go six months or, or, or a borderline a year that you might get from your lower price product. No, it's going to go like five to seven. Yeah. You years. know, we're talking. Yeah. And then you can rebuild it and not exactly. pay the full cost. Exactly. Boots, and it just right? keeps going. An exactly. It's going and going. So compounded over all this period of time, it's like it's a no brainer. Even that sell can be difficult to people at times. It's a distant problem. It's a distant problem. We're selling what ifs. Exactly. You know, so 
if if I as you know we're and we're we're focusing on marketing all the time. We're thinking about how do we make our product more accessible. How do we remove constraints, break down barriers to entry. You know, all confidence, all this stuff, right? Buyer confidence, consumer confidence, all these things. And and we're like, man, like okay, like we got to do this, got to do this. And it's like, man, but sometimes what if people don't believe us? Whatever. That that that's hard enough. I can't imagine the challenge then that someone like you, or let's say wild a, a wildland firefighter grassroots, like mm-hmm. it's it's insurmountable almost in a sense, you know. So it's like it's it's, it's sad, and you and I know and we get it, and because we're in this, and you were actually a firefighter. I'm partly in this community. I grew up in an area where there was no fire. Now there is. If I had to cast a vote as a representative in the you know in the senate as a senate what i would say hey i had this experience i know i don't think that our members of congress or members of the senate have any experience in this maybe some oh, learning stuff little. from us and their staffers okay come on and when it gets through seven different people and finally gets to the actual individual what's the message that's being communicated it's not even close to the truth it's not and that's the unfortunate thing about things like tim's act right it's like whirlwind of difference like if you're to switch like this room was dark and that's our current state of operations for wildland fire federally. If you were to like flick the light switch on and it's like, holy shit, I can see. Oh my gosh. That's wow. what the Tim's what, act did. That is what Tim's act is. It's amazing. It's, it is not passed yet, but we've had, I mean, I've had a hand in writing some of this legislation, man. I mean, it, it's hard. And it, you want to talk about crash course and civics? Yeah, this is one of them. Get involved with it. Yeah. Dude, it's, it's hard. Yeah. But the, the hard sell is, and if you want to like, I guess if, if you want to talk the money game, if you want to talk about the true cost of wildfire, when we see the numbers like from the campfire, it was like in the billions with a B, right? Billions of dollars of damage. That's just the suppression costs. That's just to put the fucker out. We're not talking about the burned area restoration teams. We're not talking about the replanting, the the soil disturbances. We're not talking about the landslides. We're not talking about the insurance premiums. We're not talking about what the actual number is. And now if you want to do back to the, go back to like the, the money thing, who's done the calculation? How can you calculate that? What is the true cost of wildfire? Are your, is your health diminishing? Is, are you going to get lung cancer? Are we going to have a, this meteoric rise in uh, silicates in the atmosphere from like all the dust and shit from basically you, you could have a fire so large that you can have a dust bowl situation from the fire wow. years later because wow. it's been sterilized. Now where all does that, where's all that particular particulate matter, all that silicates, all those, those things that are going into our bodies, where are those going? What's the true cost of wildfire? The, the, the fallout effects of wildfire are astronomically large and we will never know the true costs of it but what do you want to do do you want to pay a little now and pay an ounce of prevention and sell that what if and buy that insurance policy take care of the people that are risking their lives for a better more sustainable forestry program fuels management program your kids i got kids i want to take them to national parks i don't want to see the fucker burnt down what do we what what is the true cost? What are we buying here? Is it insurance or are we just talking about the immediate future? And it's hard. That's a hard question. It's hard. Yeah. So I get everything you're saying, yeah, but yeah. No, no, I, I'm more playing devil's man. advocate with you right now. I'm oh I'm, no, I get it. I'm I'm all for it. It's just the how. How the do you do it? Yeah. Like I immediately start thinking practically and strategically, like we have this, you know, we okay, we have this goal. We wanna 
let the world know money's about an excellent motivator yeah money yeah. pain and love yeah it's like how okay now how do we take this dream that we have which is good and right and honorable and just and righteous and then like actually turn it actually make it into fruition make it real and then i just my brain will i'm just immediately thinking okay like what is even the step and process look and it's like the first thing that you just that i hit is like is anybody actually going to buy this? Like, is, is anybody actually going to buy into? You, you and I are. I did. I've lived it, man. Because you've lived it. Yeah. And and probably a you lot. You got one of, toe in the black too. You you can yes. You can relate to these folks. I can relate to these yeah. folks. And I think that most people, if they heard this conversation, would also like people who just regular people living their lives, regular everyday Americans, they would also probably buy into this and understand it. But now the question is, okay, how do you get that from this kind of grass grassroots right? Right place and actually take it to somewhere where it's like there's this topic and then they're also talking about this topic and this topic and there's this going on and freaking ukraine and the debt ceiling and then there's there's this and then there's this and it's like there's this scandal there's yeah yeah oh, kim kardashian has a new ass yeah, yeah whatever exactly yeah. who cares like, you know and the, the nba finals and the super bowl and this it's like so that's the hard part and i, and I think that's what every single you know, grassroots type movement probably encounters. Oh yeah. And unfortunately you're gonna encounter resistance. Yeah. Man. Yeah. The question is I guess how many of them actually make it or fizzle out. And it's probably just this thing you just don't quit and you just don't give up. And we don't. You just keep going until you get what you need. You get what you want. And I think that with grassroots and which I am full disclosure here, I'm one of the founding members of it. I'm That's number awesome. six on the roster yeah. there. Yeah. So and uh I've been less involved with it just because of kids and life and stuff like that lately. But I it's been a hard battle, man. And yeah. I think the biggest thing is, is really opening people's eyes. I think the storytelling too, the personal I think exposure is what you guys need the most right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not just, we don't need the exposure. We have a marketing machine behind grassroots. We're doing great to the people that matter. I mean, I can't out anybody, but we have some very excellent relationships with people on Capitol Hill that you would be surprised. Democrats, Republicans, independents. It's alike. a bipartisan issue. House, Senate. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's a bipartisan. It'd be, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, your your fucking house is gonna burn yeah. down. Blue or left isn't gonna stop the fire. Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't yeah. doesn't matter, right? Yeah. And uh we've had some some good headway, but like where where do we go if we succeed? That's a great question. And I don't think that we're going anywhere, to be honest with you. I think there will always be a need for grassroots wildland firefighters because what's the next mission? So okay, we've fixed the Fed stuff. What's next? We're problem solvers, man. That's that's what a wildland firefighter is. It's a, a professional problem solver. And when you have something that can be the greater good change for thousands of people, generations, generation, there's the generational firefighters out there. Like that's their family legacy between fire and military. You don't really hear much of a, a generational paramedic. Yeah, that's true. Or a generational doctor. That's, yeah, yeah. You don't hear that, but... Between the military and wildfire, and fire, it and seems fire to in be, general, yeah, yeah it yeah, doesn't matter if it's yeah. specific to structure. I would say maybe police officers. You hear it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the, the people only, that kind of keep you safe at night. Exactly, folks. that's kind of the only one that I can think of. In addition to to fire and military, it's kind of like, oh yeah, my my, my grandpa was, my dad was, and now I am too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's next? I mean, that's that's the big question because I think that I, I'm I'm very cautiously optimistic because we've done so much like the the combined efforts and it takes an army i'm not saying it's just grassroots it's not just me it's not just you it's not just the surprising help from people that you would never expect with grassroots it takes an army it takes the vocalization and the move 
the grassroots movement of tens of thousands of people to actually implement change and tell their story. And I think that's why things like Amanda's podcast is so expensive or is so important. Like life with fire. She has a wonderful podcast. I think the stuff that grassroots is doing is great. It's the foundation. It's all of the people involved from not only the boots on the ground, but outward. Yeah. Secondary and tertiary yeah. folks as well. Yeah. Cause we all have the power to do this and yeah. we've moved mountains with, like I said, plastic sporks in the past. Yeah. More legislation that has been beneficial for wildland firefighters has happened in the last four years than they have in the last 50. Wow. That's significant. So it is possible. Yeah. We have their attention. That's awesome. Sounds like you're in a season right now of driving at home. Yes. Wow. To all the things that we just talked about, that hard sell, yeah. that's, that selling what ifs, that insurance policy, what are we paying for? The, what's, what's the true cost of wildfire? That's that's what we're trying to say. But the most profound and moving things that I've ever heard is like people like Michelle Hart, Tim Hart's yeah. widow. Yeah. yeah. She is an amazing human being. And dude, we, I went to family day ever at the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, do it once a year for all the fallen, right? Yep. Their families, right? Yep. You yep. were there. Yep. The The amount of pain in that room combined with the amount of healing at the same time that'll move you it was beautiful i don't know if you got to stick around for a little i bit. was there i was there yeah is that some of the most i, I felt yeah. like an interloper though because yeah. I, I mean i've lost i felt out of place i felt out of place yeah yeah so i like i was there but i was in the corner of the room and and i i purposefully left early because i felt it's hard to handle yeah it, it, it's, it, it, it wasn't right for, I felt like I shouldn't be there, you know, almost because it was just very heavy. And I felt like I was, in, I was infiltrating the, uh, the room. I was like, I didn't belong there, you know, felt because like it was, yeah. exactly, it was so, it was so daunting. It was so deep. And it's like, this is something that you can only be a part of if you've actually experienced this and been here with these you people. You walked a mile in those boots, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, so that's a great story. I actually didn't, didn't even think about that didn't to this moment like it, it, it was so being there for that day and then just seeing all yeah it's like that was the anniversary of tim hart yeah and i didn't want to stick around for it but the only reason why i did is because i was there for michelle she said well she voluntold me let's be honest here she was all like hey uh the person that was supposed to be here to support me their flight got delayed I need you to come with me. I'm like, I can't do that. You know, I can't do that. I don't belong there. I can't mm -hmm. be there for mm -hmm. this. I'm just some dickhead with a microphone and a camera talking about wildfire. And she's like, I'm not asking you. I'm fucking telling you. Yeah. And her story and the connection that we all have with her and the connection that we have with the families in that room and the rest of the boots on the ground, because this is a dangerous job. It's, it's, it's not a surprise of when it's a, a surprise of who, some some tragedy happens to it's inevitable to happen it's going to happen that's the shit that motivates people and i think that michelle's story and tim's legacy and all of the people that have fallen around wildfire those are the people yeah those are the people that are going to make this happen yeah that's their story yeah wow okay i think that was a good good spot to, to pause we to pause it right there yeah okay i just I, I feel like that was very deep and i don't want to even i don't know if we can top that one but yeah i don't want to top yeah. that one either because i i know the tim hart story so yeah it means okay. a lot guys thank you for listening 
Thank you for watching. Appreciate it. Um, Anchor Point Podcast, where can we find it? www.anchorpointpodcast.com. Okay. Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All of it. Luminary. Any Everything. Any podcast directory you can find us there so that's awesome and okay. every social media channel except okay. tiktok because i'm too old to figure out tiktok so there's grace for you that's fine <laughs> follow him on instagram subscribe to the podcast it's good it's very quality he has a much better intro than i do it's actually serious and recorded okay <laughs> mine was a i have to have like legal disclaimers with mine. It sucks. well i guess i don't have to have some <laughs> it's not even yet. for me it's for like my right for the guests right. yeah so thank you for coming on man seriously really awesome thank you dude we value a ton, and I think the, the value that you provide to the community is invaluable. So keep doing what you're doing. As do you, man. How many episodes do you have out? I think I have 125. That's amazing. It's it's fun. It's been a, it's been a ride. It's been wow. four years. It's so. incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye.